Uh, well, this year is quickly drawing to a close, isn't it? Uh, for some of us, we might be glad to see the end of it. Uh, but one of the things I really appreciate or enjoy uh, this time of year, any year, is uh, slowing down uh, and thinking or reflecting about the year that's gone by. Maybe also thinking about goals and possibly resolutions for the new year. The thing is, my tendency, maybe yours too, is to think about what I want for myself. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but I want to propose something more tonight. Uh, and that is, what is your hope for our world as we come out of a year like 2020? And what is your hope for our country? What is your hope for our families and our friends who don't know Jesus? So I want us to think about these questions uh, as we look at this tricky part of Revelation, but I think it'll help us understand a few ways to apply these two chapters. Uh, so let's uh, get into it. A couple of weeks ago, Michael, uh, Mike helpfully put some pegs in the ground to help anchor us so we're not lost in all the details of Revelation. So we're going to do something similar before we get into chapter 8. So just three pegs, uh, the preface, the perspective, and the pattern. So first, the preface. Uh, the preface to all these things that have been happening in Revelation is the awesome vision of the one on the throne and the Lamb, chapter 4 and 5. Uh, they see all that has happened and all that will happen. Their rule and their reign is still the backdrop to all of this. Number two, the perspective of world history that John is given is multifaceted. It has many sides. We're not looking at events happening one after the other, but different angles of the same thing. And so it's like Jesus holds up a diamond with its many sides so that John can see through one side, through one angle. In chapter 6, he was given the angle of tyranny. As we come to chapter 8, the diamond gets turned and we see a different angle. Another in chapter 12 and then another in chapter 15. And so these are different perspectives of life in our broken world. And finally, number 3, there's a pattern that John uses to help his readers understand what's happening. It goes like this. Uh, we're told about seven seals. Six of them are opened, unleashing judgment and death. And then there's an interlude, a glimpse of heaven, chapter 7. And then the seventh seal is finally opened. Uh, things kind of reset, and we're told about seven trumpets. Six of them are blown, and then unleashing judgment and death. There's a little bit of an interlude, and then a glimpse of heaven, chapter 11. And then the seventh trumpet is open, is blown. Uh, so as we go, remember that today's chapters must be held with next week's. Uh, so do tune in for the seventh trumpet next week. Uh, but these three pegs uh, will help us. So the preface, the perspective, and the pattern. Uh, as we come to tonight, the diamond is turned, as I said, to reveal a new angle. And that is chaos. Uh, this is not the passage I would have chosen as a final sermon to farewell you guys, uh, but it is, in God's wisdom, a passage that we need to hear. It is heavy, and it is confronting, but it is reality in our world. And so we pick things up as the seventh seal is finally opened. We've been waiting for this. Verse 1, have a look. When he, the Lamb, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, the throne room has had crowds singing and shouting. We've heard elders and angels speaking. We've heard John weeping. But all of a sudden, complete silence. For four chapters, the drama has been moving rapidly, but now not a sound. 
Why? Well, the scroll is about to be fully opened. The judgments of God and the destiny of all the earth is about to be revealed. And as if for dramatic effect, the anticipation builds and then silence in heaven. And then seven angels standing before God are given trumpets, symbols of announcement or calling to war, or here, heralding the judgment of God. Now, before they're blown, though, something else is happening. An eighth angel is there with an incense burner, verse 3. He's given incense to offer with the prayers of the saints or believers before God's throne. Now, the smoke of the incense and the prayers rises up in God's presence. And so again, like back in chapter 5, the prayers of the saints or the martyrs play an important role because they are precious to God. As heaven offers its worship, the earth does too through these prayers. It's striking, right, that in the drama of the heavenly throne room, the prayers of believers feature. I wonder if you see prayer this way, as precious worship to the king of the universe, as intimate words heard by our heavenly father. Because while our prayers on earth might seem trite, even ineffective, look at how God sees them a fragrant offering rising up to him. Even more so, the prayers of those who suffer for the gospel. What a comfort this would have been for John's first hearers, persecuted hearers, to suffering Christians today, crying out to God and knowing that he hears. But more than that, that he responds. Because as these uh, saints, the prayers of the saints ascend, the judgment of God is about to descend. It's as if the the coming judgments are waiting for these prayers to be offered before holy fire comes down on the wicked. And that's literally what happens, verse 5. The angel now fills the incense burner with fire and hurls it at the earth. The silence in heaven is broken by thunder, lightning, and earthquake. The trumpets are about to be blown and judgment given. And so this is the chaos in the cosmos. It comes in three episodes. Trumpets 1 to 4 make up episode 1, trumpet 5 is episode 2, trumpet 6, episode 3. And with each episode, things get worse and worse. It's bleak and hopeless. So again, be warned, this is heavy stuff. But we'll see that there's also a right response to chaos. So episode 1, natural disasters. Uh, Verse 7, the first trumpet is blown and hail, fire, and blood are thrown to the earth. A third of the earth is burnt, a third of trees, and all the grass. Verse 8, the second trumpet is blown, and something like a mountain on fire is thrown down to the sea. This turns a third of the sea into blood, kills a third of sea life, and destroys a third of ships on the earth. Verse 10, the third trumpet is blown, and a star falls from heaven. It poisons a third of rivers, and people die from the water. Verse 12, the fourth trumpet is blown, and a third of the sun, the moon, And the stars are struck so that darkness covers part of the earth. It's like something out of a disaster movie, right? But we also recognize these things somewhere else. Think Old Testament. Did you notice here the undoing of creation? Genesis 1 and 2. God had brought about order to chaos, but now he was pouring out his wrath in judgment over a world that has rejected him. The earth, the sea, the sun, the moon, and the stars are subject to God's curse on the world. 
Or did you notice echoes of the plagues of Egypt? Raining hail and fire, the sea turns to blood, darkness covers the earth. Again, this is judgment. Or how about the preaching of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah? A widespread devastation and disaster at the hands of God himself. But of course, this isn't just imagery from movies or the Old Testament. This is human history. And recent memory, a cyclone in Bangladesh, 1991, killed 138,866 people. A tsunami out of the Indian Ocean, 2004, killed 227,898 people. An earthquake in Haiti, 2010, killed up to 316,000 people. You see, the land, the sea, and the air are in an uproar. Aussies, too, are well acquainted with the power of nature. For all human beings, believers and non-believers, feel the effects of natural disasters. And as Revelation shows, this is power wielded by God himself. So this is episode one, the chaos we find in nature. But that's just the beginning. Something far more frightening is coming, a direct attack on humanity. Episode one, natural disaster. Episode 2, spiritual torment. Chapter 9, verse 1. Here it seems that as the fifth trumpet is blown, a star or a person falls from heaven. He's given a key to open a dark abyss, a dark, endless hole. And so much smoke comes out of this abyss that the sun, the air itself, is darkened. And as the smoke dissipates, creatures of what nightmares are made of emerge. If you're squeamish about cockroaches... Here, giant locusts, they're described in verse 7. They look like armored horses ready for battle, something like crowns on their heads, faces like men and hair like women, teeth like lions and tails like scorpions. This is grotesque and demonic, and here's an army of them. But with the symbolism in Revelation, we shouldn't ask, how can this be? But actually, what does this mean? Because again, we have Old Testament imagery here. The locust is a symbol of destruction. In the book of Exodus, they ravage the land. In the book of Joel, they herald the day of the Lord. And so here we find their specific purpose in verse 4. Have a look. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. We saw these seals a few weeks ago placed on God's people, on those who trust in Jesus. And so these seals are a guarantee of protection from the wrath of God. While believers are affected by natural disasters, they are spared the torment of these creatures. That is saved for those without the seal. Uh, I was doing some research on scorpions and stumbled on a show called Kings of Pain on the History Channel. As these two guys who travel the world and get stung or bitten by the most painful, dangerous creatures they can find. That sounds like a a smart show, right? Uh, But on the episode of Scorpions, they get stung by different types of scorpion. They explain that the pain is excruciating, uh, but actually that death is rare. So you just want to die. Verse 6 says, such is the pain inflicted by these creatures. This is a spiritual, demonic pain. 
And we know this because of the one who leads these things. Uh, Some take it to be Satan. I think that as well because of verse 11. He is the king of this horde, the angel of the abyss. His name is Abaddon, which means destruction, or Apollyon, which means destroyer. Showing that in his actions, his very being, his purpose is to wreak havoc. And so here's the devastating irony. Those who turn away from God place themselves in the hands of their tormentor. Satan afflicts those who worship and obey him. And so we see this today in the hopelessness of secularism and in the misery of the occult. It may be the pursuit of pleasures that never fully satisfy or the distraction of comfort and consumerism that leads away from what really gives life. But at its worst, it's a life so traumatically painful that death is preferable to life. This is spiritual torment. But did you notice that the angel of the abyss is not actually in control? Uh, He is given the key. If we look closer, we see restrictions on the forces of chaos. Only torment, not death. Only for five months, not 12 months. Only for those without the seal, not with the seal. There are limits on these horrors. Maybe we shouldn't even call it chaos. Why? Because this is still under the sovereign control of God. Remember our preface, the one on the throne and the lamb reign. God permits what he wills and restrains what he wills. We see here his sovereign justice, but also his great mercy. You see, the comfort for the Christian, John's first hearers, is that God is in control. The Christian sees chaos in our world like we do today and is reminded that they are sealed, reminded that they are to trust and to endure, even as the worst comes. Episode 2, spiritual torment. Episode 3, widespread death. With the sixth trumpet, verse 13, four angels are released to lead the killing of a third of the human race. That's a huge number, but a limited number. Again, God dictates the terms. And at the command of these angels, verse 16, 200 million mounted troops are released. Again, unimaginable. John describes these agents of chaos in verse 17. They're like the riders from the Lord of the Rings, a demonic horsemen that ride across the world, inflicting terror and death. Now, we don't have time to get into debates about when this is, but the intensity is high, isn't it? And the picture is graphic. Things are not getting better. And the fact is, death is around us now. A death from violence, death from covid Death from car accident, death from malnutrition, even peaceful death in sleep. Now, the Australian Bureau of Statistics reports that one person in Australia dies every three minutes, 13 seconds. In our world, it's 1.8 persons a second. That's more than one person a second gone. Right? It's extremely sobering. Every second someone dies and enters into eternity, those who are sealed into God's blessing and those who aren't into his wrath. Again, extremely sobering truths. But actually the most shocking thing in this whole passage is what comes next. 
And the response of those who are still alive. How do they react to the chaos and death around them? Verse 20, have a look. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which are not able to see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. As people today watch the evening news or hear of death in their communities or even attend the funerals of their loved ones, they continue to serve their idols. As the day of judgment comes, people continue in murder, sexual immorality, and theft. And so this is the delusion of sin, that even with death at the door, people would rather live their own way than live God's way. So we've seen that chaos reminds the believer to take heart and endure. But here, it's mind-blowing that chaos leaves the unbeliever unmoved. Because the opposite should be the case, right? And so there's a fascinating exchange in Luke 13, and we'll finish with this thought, between Jesus and some questioners. As some people come up to Jesus and report a bloody massacre that has happened by the Roman governor Pilate, Jesus' response is amazingly blunt. Verse 2, he says, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. He continues, All those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem, in Sydney? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And so Jesus' point is this, we will all die someday. And we don't know when, we don't know how, but the death of others is the wake-up call that points to our own death. And so Jesus says, repent while there is still time, or without him you will perish. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, firstly, it is so good that you're here. <sighs> Sorry. But secondly, I preach as a dying man to dying men and women, and I plead with you to turn from living for yourself and trust in the one who died for sinners. Forgiveness and eternal life is found in him alone. Do it today. I would love to talk with you after the service if you are thinking about this. And to my dear brothers and sisters, you are sealed. So as we endure in a time of chaos, our hearts break for the unrepentant. They must be warned. For the time being, God holds back the day of judgment because of his mercy. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we close then with our question from the start. Now, what is your hope for our world as we come out of a year like 2020? And what is your hope for our country, for our families and our friends who don't know Jesus? It is that they would repent and believe in him. So let's continue to love others by telling them about our Savior. 
Let's regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a hard word you've given us tonight. But we thank you that you do it in love. Thank you that our prayers rise up to you as fragrant offerings. So by your spirit, help us live in this age of chaos with faith and endurance. And Father, we pray for the unrepentant, that you would open their eyes and draw them to yourself so they might join us one day in the heavenly gathering. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.